0: I tell you, most people have no clue what they want. I cannot tell you how many times I've done business planning with people and I'll sit down and I say, who do you want to be and what kind of a life do you want to live? They don't have an answer. The moment I got clear about who I wanted to be and what kind of a life I wanted to live, I no longer had to compromise or conform to other people's set of who they thought I needed to be. Not my mom, not my dad, not my sister, not my girlfriend, not my kids, nobody. This is the
1: life I want to live. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It is your boy Tequila, aka Rabbi Cantlow's, aka Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Patrick Bet David of Valuetainment. He has one of the largest business YouTube channels. Plus, this guy also has $150 a hundred fifty million dollar year agency business on the side. If you've ever wanted to learn about going big in life, you're going to love this episode. Here's three major takeaways you're going to get out of today. One, knowing where you can win. I really love that part. Two, how to play offensive in your business and in your life. And three, what is the Patrick Bed David challenge? I really liked his, and I hated it at the same time. You're going to enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Two things I want to recommend before we dive into the show. Number one, check out Paka Apparel, -apparel P-A-K-A-Apparel.com. They make clothes out of a Paka wool. Pretty interesting. I like their stuff. As well, check out Golden Ratio. It's a new coffee I had for my buddy Clark. I'm not getting paid to recommend either of these. It's drinkgoldenratio.com. It's honestly some of the best coffee I've ever had. Also, a special pre-show shout-out to listener Darren Sanborn from Arizona. Hope you have a nice tan out there, man. He left a review saying, Noah's podcast is the bomb. I have literally listened to every single episode over the years. Man, thank you so much. That means a lot. I have been a part of every episode, so it's good that we did it together. Uh, I appreciate you and every other one of you gorgeous listeners. If you want a shout-out in a future episode, leave a review or send a tweet or an email. I check every single one of them. I guess the question that the first one, <laughs> we can start with softballs. The first question I was like, how do you build $150 million net worth? How do you build
0: a $150 million net worth? That's a good question. So number one is I went through a process of raising my own money. So one of the mistakes a lot of people make is they start the business and they go raise money. And when they do, they have to give up 40% equity or 45% equity or 30% equity round one. And then by round two, round three of raising money, you end up with 30%, 40%. And then when you sell, you're only getting 20% of 200 million or 20% of 100 million. So your net worth ends up only being 20 million. The way I did it is I ran for the first seven and a half years. I was roommates with my dad. Our rent was $600 a month. I was very cheap when it came down to spending money. I drove regular cars. I had a Ford Focus uh, in my mid 20s until I had a quarter million dollars in a bank. Then I bought a used S600, a used car, and then eventually I got myself, I bought a, a used a Z06 2006 for $42,000, drove it for two years, and then I sold it for uh, $38,000, which means I lost $4,000 on it over a two-year period. So you break $4,000, divided by 24 months, that's $200 a month payment. So I was very frugal, and then eventually I saved $500,000 by late 20 cash. And then when I started the insurance company, I didn't raise any capital till 2014 when I went and raised capital, but I did revenue back funding, which means I'm just paying 32% interest per year, which is high expensive money from a Silicon Valley guy. And we paid off the money within two years, but it helped me out, but I didn't give up any equity. Then in 2017, I raised $10 million and I gave up a little bit more equity, but I still had majority to control, I had majority to shares. And the company now, the EBITDA is a very big number. It's grown 50% every year minimum the last five years. Our CAGR is very high. You know, when you got a company that's doing high revenue and it's grown at that rate and it's got a good EBITDA and the company's worth a few hundred million and you're the majority owner, that kind of helps you build equity. And then when you make some good investments throughout the process, you know, I don't know how they came up with the 150 million, but uh, they're
1: pretty close to it. I hope that answers your question for you. It was a question that opened up Pandora's box of questions. First, asked me this question that kind of made me think about it for you is, who is Patrick David?
0: Patrick David is the ultimate underdog story. I know your audience are underdogs. It's the ultimate underdog story because he was the kid growing up that didn't have good grades from a young age, not just in high school, had bad grades in Iran, didn't have good grades in Germany, came to the States. The only subject I was good at was math. I enjoyed math. I love numbers. Everything I look at is through the lens of numbers. And then in high school, my parents get a divorce. I'm the only kid amongst the Armenian community out of our friends where parents get a divorce. And in the Armenian community, it's kind of frowned upon. So I joined the army, 1.8 GPA. I get out. I'm a bodybuilder. I'm trying to win Mr. Olympia. It was my dream. I'm going to be one of these Arnold guys. I had a nice physique. I had a nice setup. And I said, I'm going to go compete. So I went to Mr. Olympia and I hung out around all these guys that that era was Aaron Baker, Cormier, all these guys. And uh, all of a sudden, I uh, met a girl named jean vier at Venice Beach. And she was working on Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. uh, We started dating. She picked me up in a different car every time. I'm like, what do you do for them? And she says, I'm a stockbroker. I said, I'd love to be one. She says, Morgan Stanley only hires if you go get a degree. Anyways, long story short, I'm not going to go to school. I eventually ended up getting a job at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter the day before 9-11. And I started. I got my Series 7, 66, 31, 26 life and health. And I did that for about a year. Then I left to Transamerica for seven and a half years. And in October of 09 started my own insurance company with 66 agents and grew to, today, we have roughly 17,000 agents in 49 states. You know, we went from doing 50 policies a month to 10, 11, 12,000 policies a month. And I started a YouTube channel that grew from what it was to now a few million subscribers. So that's who Patrick Bay David is. Where do we take it from here? This is just the beginning. I'm at a Dodger game yesterday. And I got my two boys with me. We're sitting right there behind plate. Uh, A couple years ago, I went to the Dodgers in L.A., game seven against Astros, hoping the Dodgers were going to win the World Series and they lose. It was a terrible game. You know, every time you go to a World Series and you're hoping your team wins and they lose, it's like a waste of time and money. You don't even want to stick around for a celebration. I take these guys to the game, and I'm watching their eyes and their reaction to everything because they've never seen this before, eight-year-old and seven-year-old boy. And I'm looking at their lens, and I got a four-year-old daughter, Senna, and I'm just looking at it saying, holy moly, the B- David family is just getting warmed up. So this is what's happened in my life so far. If the man upstairs keeps me healthy for 80, 90 years, it's going to be a pretty good movie. That's all it's going to come down to. This is nothing compared to the vision of what we want to do. God willing, if everything goes the way it's planned and we stay healthy, the future looks bright.
1: I hope you do. I hope you get all of that and stay healthy. I think one thing that I, I know for my audience and myself too, it's like, where did you create the space or start thinking about how the movie's going to look? That's something I was even thinking about today. Like before this call, I, uh, I quit or I told the guys like, Hey, I'm going to not be on your board anymore. This uh, pretty successful company. Cause I'm not, I'm not hundred percent with it. And I know like I sh- I'm not really showing up and I was like, Oh, well, how do I now start thinking about what I do want to show up to or what I'm already doing? So I was thinking about that for yourself.
0: It's amazing. You say that I wrote this book, your next five moves, right? Here's A book I wrote took me five years to write. We got the deal with Simon & Schuster four or five years ago, and it just published August 18th. And when I wrote the book, I said, Your Next Five Moves, the original title for me was Your Next 15 Moves. Because to me, everything I do in my life, the way this was inspired is I woke up one day years ago, and I look at my phone, and my girlfriend texts me 6 a.m. saying, I think it's time we break up because my family's right. You love your business. More than you love me. So I'm 25 years old sitting there thinking to myself, 27, I'm like, okay, first of all, you wake up in the morning, girl doesn't want to be with you. She thinks you love the business more. Then I have a message from my mom. My mom's telling me what happened to my son who loved his mom and would always call. You haven't called me for a month. And then my number one sales rep quits, my number one client quits, and all of this happens by 605. That's how my day got started, okay? And I'm sitting there saying, in the Christian community, they have this bracelet that people wear that says WWJD. What would Jesus do? Your sinner saying, What do I do? What would any successful CEO in this situation do? What would somebody that made it all the way to the top do in this situation? And you start thinking about the people in your life that are successful. You go say, What would my dad do? What would John do? What would Bob do? What would Mary do? And then eventually in that moment, I realized there is 50 different ways I can handle this. I can call my mom first and feel guilty and say, mom, I'm so sorry, and start my day off with a lot of guilt. I'm so sorry I forgot about you, but I love you, mom. And then I can call my girl and say, why don't you come over? I'll take the day off, and we'll just hang out together, and I'll make it up to you. I swear I'm going to make it up to you, and then I'm going to call the client, and then I'm going to call the agent, and I'm like, well, this is what we're going to do. Can we make this work? And in that moment, I realized I don't know what the best decision is to make, but I want to find out. So everything in my life became about what are the next five, 10, 15 moves and what is the next move I need to make today? A lot of times people make number 17 move and move number one and they fail miserably. There's nothing wrong with move number 17. You just don't need to do it next. So for me, move number one is master knowing yourself. Now that seems a little cliche. What do you mean master knowing yourself? We spent our entire lives studying everybody else. We study tiger. We study Jordan. We study Brady. We study all these people, these paintings I have next to me in my office. We study all these great characters, right? We're just studying people. Let me study this person. Let me study that president. Let me study this president. But we don't study ourselves. Not enough. And so I started studying this guy. Who do you want to be? You know, the movie Notebook, the movie that no man has ever watched before. Obviously, men, we don't watch Notebook. Not at all. I love that movie, honestly. It's an amazing movie, right? And you watch the movie Notebook, and there's that famous scene. They're by the car. She comes back. She was dating the other guy that's like the perfect guy that's going to end up being a senator one day, whatever that guy was. Then she comes back, hangs out a couple of days with Noel. They're by the car. She's driving him insane, and she finally asks the question, what do you want? This is the whole moment of what do you want? Not what I want. Not what he wants. Not what your mom wants. What do you want? And she says, it's not that easy. It is that easy. It's not that easy, right? I tell you, most people have no clue what they want. I cannot tell you how many times I've done business planning with people and I'll sit down and I say, who do you want to be and what kind of a life do you want to live? They don't have an answer. The moment I got clear about who I wanted to be and what kind of a life I wanted to live, I no longer had to compromise or conform to other people's set of who they thought I needed to be. Not my mom, not my dad, not my sister, not my girlfriend, not my kids, nobody. This is the life I want to live. Now, does this mean you're extremely selfish and you don't accommodate and you don't love? No, that's not what that means. But living a life of conformity, where you're constantly trying to conform to everybody, you are never gonna live your full potential trying to conform. So the sooner I found out what I wanted to do with the business, my philosophies, my politics, how I wanna lead, my non-negotiables in marriage, my non-negotiables in friendship, my non-negotiable in partnership, my non-negotiable in hiring executives, the sooner I knew that, the more clear it was with the people I did business with and it minimized the amount of conflicts I can potentially have with that
1: person. I wanna give you an Oscar. I was like, I'm ready to go. I'm gonna go kill people out here. I think one, I gotta commend you on your conviction. Like when I'm listening to you talk, I love hearing it. And just the, the level of clarity of thought is beautiful. When kids and adults put Patrick Bett David up on their walls, what will we learn? When kids put Patrick Bett
0: David on the wall, what will we learn? What do you mean by that?
1: Well, you were talking about like Tiger Woods and Tom Brady and all the, the lead. And, it, and I think there's something interesting where when you started your YouTube channel, I wonder if you thought it was going to be successful. Or you're like, no, I, I was thinking about, uh, do you watch UFC ever? I do. Do you remember when Nate Diaz beat Conor McGregor and they're, and they're like, what do you have to say about the fight? He's like, I'm not surprised motherfuckers. I was thinking about that for you when you started YouTube. And I was like, well, you know, what is there to learn when we study Patrick Bet-David? Not the first two years, not the first two years. So let
0: me explain to how I work. The way I work is I built my body up, and then I said, do I have the physique to be the best of the best? I don't care to be a bodybuilder. I have no interest in being a bodybuilder just to be a bodybuilder. I want to be the greatest. Do I have it? And I realized I don't, not in bodybuilding. Why not? I'm 6'4 a half. okay? No one in Mr. Olympia today wins at 6'4 and a half. The right height for Mr. Olympia is 5'10", five, 5'9". 5'8", even back in the days when Arnold won at 6'2 and a half, that was a time pre-GH, pre-heavy duty stuff that people have to do today. Do I really want to be 400 pounds during off-season to win Mr. Olympia? Guys, Gunter, Greg Kovacs, those types, Jean-Pierre Fuchs, these types of guys weren't winning. So I said, no, I'm not going to go compete Mr. Olympia. I'm very comfortable closing this chapter and I'm moving on, right? And then I sat there and I said, content creation. I don't know. I've never been on camera. Let me create some content. I gave myself two years to think if I had what it took. So I went two years and then I said, it's a little bit of an audience. I went two more years and I said, okay, we can play ball. Then we played ball and we took a 90 day break in Valuetainment. I think we had 450,000 subs. I took a 90 day break. I said, we're either doing this to turn this into a media company or I don't want to do it anymore because it's taking too much time out of my life. I have three kids, I'm married, I'm running two businesses. I don't have time for this. So it's one or the other. So when we came back, It was to get the bigger vision. That's when I called the guy who owned Valuetainment.com. It was a publicly traded company. And I bought the domain from him. He changed his company's name to Value Tease. We ended up getting Valuetainment. This is a publicly traded company because we were going to play ball. But for the first few years, I had no idea what was going to happen with this thing, whether we could do it or not. And that's how I treat most things I do for the first couple of years. What happened in those 90 days? Those 90 days, we talked a lot. We kind of said, what do we want to do? What are, you know? How do we want to do this? I kind of asked myself, are you missing it? Are you okay without it? Is it itch? Are you itching to get back? Do you really want to do this? At what level do you want to do? It? Are you doing it just to be cool? Do you like people recognizing you? Is that what the motive is? You want people to stop you by airports and take pictures? Cause if that's the motive, dude, you got to stop this because you got better things to do. You want your kids to want to take pictures with you, not strangers. You want your kids to want to climb on top of you and wrestle with you, not this. But if we're going to do this, it's got to be for the right reason. Once that became clear to me, I said, let's go. And then obviously from there on, there's phases. And we're coming up on the next phase right now. Once I replace myself here, then I got to play the next phase of what we're going to be doing with Vitamin. And the vision's pretty big at this point. What is that? I think it's a great time right now for a media company. Very simple. I think you got politics right now. You got Fox on one side. You got CNN on another side. You got MSNBC on another side. And if you watch Fox, you pretty much know where Fox is. If you watch CNN, MSNBC, you see where they're at. You're seeing what Netflix is doing, disrupting the game a little bit. You saw Quibi get in the game and try to compete. They raised $1.8 billion. They totally screwed it up. You got Meg Whitman, a woman who took eBay from $8 million to $32 billion, a woman worth $5.1 billion, teams up with Quibi. And you got Katzenberg, who has produced all these ridiculous movies, $910 million guy, and he becomes the founder of Quibi and CEO of Quibi, and they come together and they raise $1.8 billion from Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, NBC Universal, Alibaba, Time Warner, Warner Brothers, Sony. All of these guys give them the $1.8 million. Six months later, five days ago on Wall Street Journal, they say they're shutting down. And they're giving $350 million back to their viewers, to their investors, and they're walking away because the idea didn't work, either because it was a bad idea or because of the pandemic. The time today for a media company, in my opinion, is great. I want to compete with those guys and see what, if we have what it takes to compete in a marketplace. We have no clue. We may screw the whole thing up, but I feel the timing's perfect right now, especially the direction we're taking it. And we are extremely excited and curious to know what the future looks like. We know one thing, though. We're going to play ball. We're going to compete. And if we get, get our asses handed to us, we're very comfortable with that. But I just see the timing right now with media is perfect. The pandemic taught us when the pandemic happened, everybody was glued to the screen of wanting to know what's going on in the media. Everybody was. And that season taught us the future is media because media is pandemic free, everything free, because you can always see the news from right here and people are glued to this nowadays and that's where the future is at. So we kind of want to disrupt the media industry and go compete in the marketplace. So we got some work to do, but we feel pretty optimistic about
1: it. One thing I was curious, so you created an insurance company. It didn't sound like you ever were working in insurance before. I did. Transamerica is an insurance company. You know, it, When I was at Morgan Stanley, that's the financial
0: industry. So you, I got my insurance license while I was working at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter because Morgan Stanley also sells life insurance on annuities.
1: Those two things that, that I want to understand. Do you think you, you've done well in insurance, you've done well in the media company and in general because you have such big visions? That's something that I've noticed in different people. Like I've, When I worked at Facebook, Mark was like, we're going to take over the world. And I've seen other people that have small visions get small success. And it sounds like the size of your vision it's got to be pretty interesting.
0: No one can say Meg Whitman doesn't have a big vision or Katzenberg <laughs> doesn't have a big vision, you know, but they failed Quibby. These are people that have done stuff that only few people, Meg Whitman ran for governor, almost won in a state of California as a Republican and a woman, you know, at that time was like, there's no way in the world this is going to become a reality. And she almost won in California. So I don't think it's the vision. I think what makes some of these guys that are able to make their vision a reality is they stay childlike, they stay hungry, they're emotional, they're dreamers. They have a sense of logic, but they don't lead with logic. They reason with logic, but they keep dreaming. And as you get older and richer and too logical, you forget to play that game. You know, it's like going on a date with a 55-year-old who's been through three marriages and she's dated 40 men before and there's nothing you can do to impress her. She's got $300 million on the bank from her two marriages. It's like, dude, where are you going to take me to impress me? Paris, oh, I've been there 15 times. I own a property. Dude, where are you going to take me? You're going to take me to Nobu, have sushi? Dude, I've had private chefs come and cook for me. What are you going to do? So you go on a date with this person, and he's like, oh, I'll pick you up in my S500. Oh, whatever. Okay. So where are we going? Where are you going to take me? I'm going to take you to this restaurant. And then you're like, dude, what a boring date. Nothing about it was exciting. Then you go take a 25-year-old. And you take her out. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. This was great. What, what's your favorite kind of food? i like, let me take you to a place and give you some caviar. You ever had caviar before? I've never had caviar before. And you just watch this girl have caviar for the first time. It's like, this is so amazing, right? And you take her to a nice place. And he say, you know what? We've been together for six months. You ever been to Europe? I've never been to Hawaii. I've never left the country before. You've never been to Hawaii? No. I take you to Hawaii. <gasps> oh my gosh, this is what everybody talks about. There's something exciting and innocent about that, right? When you become older, richer, and powerful, you lose that innocence. You're not attractive anymore. The people that are older and they keep that innocence, like Trump kept it. He still has that crazy childlike, right? There's something attractive about this guy. You go to some of these guys that are older who still have it, and you say, well, what about the other guy? Why is he still attractive? Why is she still attractive? It's not about politics. This has nothing to do with politics. This has to do with being attractive as you age. The moment you lose that innocent, attractive, naive, not naive, uh, you know, childlike side of it, people don't want to do business with you. So I think if you don't think the impossible is possible and you start reasoning too logically, you're going to lose. Look at McCain when he went against Obama. Who had a bigger resume? Not even close. Who won? Obama won. Because he was childlike. dream. John F. Kennedy Child, like, we're going to go, you know? What are you talking about? Yeah, we are going to go. By the end of the decade, this guy's out of his mind. I think as you age, you become more successful. You have more money in the bank. You got to be very careful. One time I sat down with Moody Family in Houston, Galveston, and I went and met with the guys. And I wanted to broker a deal with them. I had a very good idea for these guys. And they were interested. But I go to his floor, executive suite, 32 years old. And he says, Patrick, you know the difference between people like you and people like me? I said, No, what is it? He said, People like you wake up every morning wanting to make their first billion. You know what people like me do? I said, What's that? I said, I wake up every morning wanting to keep my billions. That's the difference. See, logical protecting, emotional dream advancing. The moment you get away from here, you're no longer attractive. There's nothing attractive about just protecting. What's attractive is, offense, going, changing, disrupting, new, unknown. You lose this, your empire is not gonna go too big because you become too logical. No matter how old you are, 70 years old, 50 years old, 20 years old, or 15 years old.
1: How do you think you stay in that mindset and what are some examples of it recently for you? Be around kids as much as possible.
0: Be around younger people as much as possible. Be around kids that tell, like my kid will say the crazy like yesterday I'm telling my kid, Hey, guys, can you imagine what this was like? And, you know, these guys won the World Series championship for the rest of their lives. They're going to be champions. I'm trying to get my kids in a mindset because they just saw the World Series. You know, my son, I said, can you imagine one day you become a champion? You play professional sports? He says, no, dad, I don't want to play professional sports. He says, I want to make a new sport. I'm like, what? Yeah, what if we make a new sport, daddy? Here I am thinking I'm like this big thinker and my kid takes it to whole different. Let's create a new sport. And he starts to imagine, what if we take a ball and what if we do this? I'm like, wow, you took me there. Well, what if I don't hang out around this kid, I'm just going to be thinking one-dimensional, multi-dimensional. He took me to four or five dimensions of what if we start a new sport? That creation mode of being around young, innocent minds that hasn't yet been screwed up, it's so contagious for adults.
1: Where's a recent example for you where you acted uh, offensively? The reason I think about it for myself is yesterday I was talking to these finance guys I work with. And I gave him some company money and I said, just don't lose the money. And it's down 0.2%. And I'm like flipping out. I'm like, point, it's down $20,000. You're fired. As you're saying, and I'm like, I should just be like, oh, let it ride. You know, oh, let's go all the way. You know, I'm curious uh, for you. Now, here's the crazy part. I mean, obviously, if you don't have
0: that sense, I do, you're going to be out of business. So I'm not telling you to be childlike in every place. I mean, the whole, <laughs> the whole thing with your next five moves, move number five is got pretty much nothing to do with what I just said right now move number five is master power plays. I've had the chance to sit with some of the biggest mobsters that are living today in the world, whether it's Sammy DeBull Gravano. He's done two major interviews. One is with with NBC 1992, Diane Sawyer, and the other one is with myself. And the interview I did with Sammy DeBull has got eight, nine million views. I've met with a lot of these uh, mobsters out there that I've interviewed. Michael, a lot of them. If you go through a list of them, these guys are the ultimate power plays in the streets because To them, if you screw up, you could lose your life. It's not like you just lose your business. You don't just file bankruptcy. They could take you out. In the world of business, if you wake up every morning naive, thinking your competitors love the fact that you're in business, you will be put out of business very quickly. They would love for you to be put out of business, okay? Amazon didn't lose sleep over Toys R Us going out of business after they did a joint venture together and Toys R Us went out of business. Amazon stuck around. You also cannot be naive. You know, one moment you may go into a meeting where you're selling the vision and the dream of where we're going. Another meeting you may have, maybe the meeting they need to have that's a little bit more about, hey, we better make the next five moves or else we're about to lose a million dollars. So what is the most efficient next five moves we need to make? And I know this kind of sounds bipolar to some people that are watching this, but unfortunately that's kind of business. You know, you got to go from the one meeting to the next meeting, to the next meeting, to the next meeting. And there may be a different version of a mindset that needs to go there. Some is defense some is offense, some is special teams, and you've got to be able to handle those different types of meetings.
1: In your content media career, as well as in your insurance career, what have been some of the inflection points or moments you're proud of?
0: I just love the game. You know, to me, it's a game. I love playing this game. There's something so exciting about playing the game of business. You know, if you like Monopoly, if you like role-playing games back in the days, or if you like, you know, any of these card Rami, There's strategy behind Rami, There's strategy behind poker. There's strategy behind some of these games. The ultimate game I've ever played is business. There's not a better game I've played in life than business because all of those games that you play are applied in the world of business. So the biggest highs, you know, maybe we had an event last year at at the Mirage. We had 7,000 people there and had a chance to interview President Bush. And he was there and, you know, he wrote a nice note. It's on the wall right there for me. You just reminded me of that. Or when the late Kobe Bryant was at the event last year and we interviewed Kobe and, you know, he and I sitting down and having a conversation together before the interview for an hour and just making a connection and following up. And we were getting ready to do some other stuff together potentially. And those are great moments as you go through. To me, it's more about experiences than anything else. I don't I don't think twice about spending money on experiences because experiences to me are going to last a lifetime. All the other stuff. It's just, you know, I've had all the exotics and I love them. I'm about to buy a ridiculous exotic right now. I'm I'm purchasing. It's probably going to be the most expensive exotic I've ever bought in my life. It's cool. It's going to be here. I'll look at it. I'll share it with my friends. But I guarantee you, within six months, I'm going to be bored out of my mind with that car. Just kind of how my wiring is. But experiences, sharing a moment you had where you're at Gibson Island, Baltimore, and you're having dinner with Prince Edward. And Miss America, and you're sitting down with the CEO of T. Rowe Price at a seventeen thousand square foot home, and you're sailing, and you're hanging out with these these types of conversations you're having. Yeah, I'm going to share those stories with my kids, and I'm going to tell them they're human beings just like you and I. All they did is they thought bigger, they worked harder, they had better strategies, and if we do that as well, one day you can be there too. So it's more about experiences. I couldn't really
1: go to a place for me to say that's my pinnacle. Either with the insurance business or YouTube, was there when you took it more seriously? What did you do differently? Once I knew I could compete. In a marketplace,
0: then I took my strategies more seriously. It's knowing when I could really compete. See, I, I'll go play basketball, and I hate losing. I can't stand losing, but I'm not a good basketball player. But with whatever I got, I'm going to compete. I'm going to compete on the floor, no matter what it is. You're going to get somebody that's going to hustle, play ball, and I will compete because I, I can't stand losing and I love competing. The moment I know that I can compete in something at the highest level that's when obsession comes around the corner. That's why I don't take a lot of new hobbies because there's a fear of an obsession coming right afterwards. Mm. So I'm very careful of getting connected like golf and all this stuff. I'm very worried about obsession. So I don't want to go in to get obsessed because I want to control the amount of obsessions that I have because the higher level of obsession I have on one thing, I get higher return versus if I'm obsessed about five different things. You know, It's like back in the days, you got four or five girlfriends and You're calling Mary Cindy and you're like, oh, I screwed up again. It's a lot easier to save that 30-minute argument by just having one simply because I don't want that headache anymore. What are you obsessed about these days? The vision. The vision of what we want to do next. I mean, I go on 20-year runs. The first 20 years was just making sure I don't make any big mistakes in life, like felony, things like that. The second 20-year run rate was wealth and finding one industry I can lock onto for 20 years and fine-tuning my skill set, human nature, selling, negotiation reading people, intuition, strategies. And the next 20 years is gonna be the you know industry I'll get involved in, and then there's the last 20 years. So my next 20 years is gonna be obviously what I talked to you guys about earlier. So I'm, I'm pretty obsessed about that.
1: What are you obsessed about outside of uh, work? You, do you do golf? No,
0: I don't do golf. I read, I work out. I um, like to experience new places. I live a pretty simple life. I got three kids that I really enjoy. I got to tell you, man, right now, there aren't a lot of things I enjoy more than them being around me. Yesterday, I'm at the game. My middle son is on my shoulders. Older son is trying to climb on top of me. And the day they stop not wanting to climb on top of me is the day I got some work to do. And they still like climbing on top of me. And my daughter comes and wants to lay next to me in bed in the morning just to kind of get a little bit of, you know, it's just, to me, that's the ultimate high for me. Sundays, to me, I'm in heaven on Sundays because
1: I'm around these guys. What are you uncertain of? You seem like you're like, everything is certain. I'm like, yo, is there anything he doesn't know? Oh, of course. I mean, listen, election, uncertain of, you're
0: uncertain about what's going to happen in the future with policies of America. Is this going to get away from capitalism? Are some of the philosophies going to change? What's going to happen with kids, you know, their philosophies, the relationship, marriage, health. You know, it's a lot of things I'm uncertain of. I probably have a high level of paranoia. You know, like Andy Grove wrote a book called Only the Paranoid Survive. If you work with me on a daily basis, I have a high level of paranoia in certain areas. Certain areas I'm very certain with,
1: you know, where people look at me and say, this
0: guy seems certain, but many areas I don't.
1: There's some things that you did that I really loved. You said something in one of your previous interviews, would you let your daughter date yourself? I thought that was just a really powerful thought. I was like, would, would I let my future, would I let would the wife I want to have marry me? I'm like, I don't know. I thought that was really strong. And, I, and one other thing you have, uh, another thing you said was that when you met with a bunch of different people, you seem like you're really good at relationships, that you would send them books after a lot of the different meetings. I thought that was kind of a really interesting approach of how you built relationships and connected with people.
0: Yeah, because in return, you know, if I'm asking you for your time and you're way ahead of me in life, I have to give something back so you don't think it was a waste of your time. So I pay close attention to what we talk about, and I'm trying to grab something, and then I say, okay, I think he's going to like this book. I think he's going to like this article. Let me introduce him to Bobby. Let me send him this uh, wine. Let me send him this. I have to give back for the time you gave to me, a person that's way ahead of me in life, for you to walk away and say, I don't mind giving him another hour 90 days from now.
1: If there was a Patrick Bed David challenge or the value tainment challenge, what would that look like? Oh man, I don't even know what to tell you what the petrol would challenge. Meaning if I was to challenge my own audience? Yeah. Or one of the things I'm pretty known for is the coffee challenge. I think one of the skills in business is, is asking. So you go ask for 10% off when you get coffee. The audience, our underdog audience really likes to, loves challenges as well as myself. Yeah.
0: You know, I will tell you, I went, I, my biggest obsession in, at 23, 24 years old was sex. And I don't know if you've seen the video. I love women. I love partying. So I went and took away the thing I love the most. I went 17 months without it. The challenge isn't necessarily sex is what I'm talking about. What is the one thing you're addicted to? Video games? Drop it for 30 days. Is it cigarettes? Is it weed? Drop it for 30 days. Whatever controls you, give it up and tie a goal to it. So if you can go 30 days without this, you buy yourself this. It's different for everybody, but I would say that. Any books you're reading these
1: days that have stuck out besides your own?
0: I'm reading investment banking books and private equity books because I'm going through it right now. So it's all these boring private equity books that wouldn't do nothing for you. But I will tell you, I went through Kirk Kerkorian's book, Gambler. I went through Bob Iger's book and I went through Ted Turner's book and I recommend all three of them. Measure What Matters is also
1: good by John Doerr. Phenomenal book. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you love the episode as much as I did. If you did, go subscribe to Valuetainment.com on YouTube as well. Go to Patrick Bet David on Instagram. That's at PatrickBetDavid and let him know you found him from our show. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go play baseball together. And before you go, tweet at me, at Noah Kagan, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Also, if you haven't done it, go subscribe to my newsletter, SendFox.com Noah. That's SendFox.com Noah. And if you don't have a newsletter for yourself, start it right now. Go to SendFox.com. It's free. We made it for people just like you. Finally, a couple special shout outs to my amazing team. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com for doing these episodes. Please don't hire him away from me. Actually, there's a lot of love to give. Hire him away. Uh, thank you to David Mitchell, Jerby, and Jen from the Dork team for all the magic y'all do. And finally, shout out to JR Lazo, who's our creative director at appsumo.com. Thank you for making the app sumo stuff look so gorgeous. Have an Austin day. Where's your favorite chicken wings from?